If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, as well as our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com slash shop. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. There's more life in one teaspoon of soil than humans on the planet. And we're just discovering. We, we've identified only like 15 or 20% of those life forms. So the other 80, 85%, we don't even know what they are. We don't know what function they play in that soil ecology. We need time to do this research and we need to do it fast. That was Elizabeth Whitlow, the executive director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is a nonprofit that is leading the Regenerative Organic Certification, also known as the ROC, a holistic high bar certification that encompasses soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. In 2019, we talked quite a bit about regenerative agriculture and our need to transition uh, our agriculture from conventional to organic and then beyond that to regenerative. So how do we actually tell what's been grown regeneratively compared to what hasn't been grown regeneratively? And what does that even mean if you're hearing about this concept for the first time? Well, the regenerative organic certification is really the one to watch, and it is rolling out later this year in 2020. So you're going to hear all about that and more in this episode. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I really got my onto this path in food right out of college, honestly. It was, took me a little while. I grew up in kind of in North Georgia and, you know, the tomboy did things kids do, ran around, played and um, outside and whatnot. But, you know, pretty, probably a pretty sheltered life of um, not really being that exposed ever to farming or agriculture or anything like that, much beyond my great grandparents' home in Nebraska, where they actually grew food and, and my grandma had a compost pile. I remember kind of the magic around that, but really wasn't too interested in it. 
it was out of college. I, I had some time where I was waiting for a Peace Corps assignment and I'm like, I've got to get out of Atlanta. I'm going to just find this internship somewhere and, and get out and try something new. And I, I landed myself in the Ozarks in Arkansas at the Center for Sustainable Agriculture and Renewable Energy. So this is back in the early 90s and pretty new concepts, really. And I was at this center that was uh, developed by David Orr. And he worked with some of the other really big thinkers on these topics kind of in the Midwest there at the time, like uh, Amory Lovins, Hunter and Amory Lovins, you've probably heard of, Fred Kirshenman and all-time hero Wes Jackson from the Land Institute. So there I was introduced to this whole concept about food, having to travel certain miles to get to our plate. The power of agriculture in transforming landscapes and communities and how just like making a simple change of where you buy your food from could make all the difference in the world in in the health of a community and in your own health. And so I became pretty inspired by that and actually never even went to the Peace Corps assignment, kept heading, kept heading west, which was was pretty fun, you know, by way of Rocky Mountains and through Montana and Idaho and up into Washington State and, and eventually landed out west um, in uh, near Olympia, Washington, on a little island called Bashan, where I uh, went to graduate school at the Evergreen College. So there I got pretty deeply involved in studying agroecology and specifically related to coffee. Coffee was really big at the time in the late 90s. Um, there was a big move towards more like this concept about shade grown coffee and preventing deforestation in Central America by helping small scale farmers continue to farm their coffee under the canopy of the shade in this kind of rustic polyculture type growing situation, which is where coffee is designed to grow and how it's always grown until oh, USAID and like these modern kind of green revolution advocates of technification in agriculture started introducing these new varieties they had bred to withstand full sun production and and have a really high fertility needs and chemical needs. So basically, we introduced that all over the world. And there was this move to try and try and bring, you know, keep the farmers who were growing shade grown coffee in that because of the recognition of what those all that biodiversity and, and um, everything in the canopy of these rainforests really was essential to to a future for these people and for those farmers. So that's kind of where I got it started. And I, I started all my work became focused in coffee and shade grown coffee was becoming a really big movement, organic and fair trade coffee. And so I was became deeply involved in that industry. And that's how I eventually ended up in the Bay Area and then up in Northern California. Most consumers today are aware of our need to look for organic labels as an indicator of more environmentally friendly practices. But in some ways, organic has fallen short of what consumers may expect it to involve. And it may also oversimplify what it'll take for us to create a food system that is truly sustainable, regenerative and equitable. What were the primary reasons that Regen Organic was created? Because in essence, its reasons for being is also proof that organic has not gone far enough. Yeah, it's a complicated uh, story there, really. Like I would say, first off, that organic is the it's the best label we can buy for food to assure the most, you know, that, that, that you're getting food that is grown without toxic chemicals and that you're getting food that is verified from seed to final processing. And so organic is a really strong label, but it's, it, this is a federal law now. The organic movement got so big and there were so many varying interpretations of it that there was the need for 
the government to step in and create this law. And it's really one of the only industries probably that's ever gone to the government and said, hey, we want you to regulate us because we want to have this even playing field so that we're all like from Texas to California to Indiana, we all have the same definition of organic. And there were many um, inspired people who worked on that Organic Food Production Act and, and that is what was used to eventually what became the federal law. I would just say that it's a federal law. It's administered by the USDA. There's There are areas in that law that can be s- somewhat gray. And then the interpretation kind of comes down to the certifier. I remember I got to interview Dave Chapman of The Real Organic Project back in episode 142. And from him, I was surprised that there's been fraud within the organic label and that he said there's animal factory farming going on in USDA organic and that uh, there are hydroponically grown produce as well that can be certified organic. So that's kind of the starting point that got me thinking about what organic actually means from there. Right. And those are two really defining points in recent history with the organic rule that helped change things or that, that kind of spurred the development of the ROP and the ROC. So so the federal rule on organic is it, there's no way that it can solve all of our problems. It is not the panacea. It is not going to address everything that every consumer cares about. That we know. But we do know it can give assurance that it is a crop that is grown using chemicals that are not toxic and that is there's full traceability and that there is integrity to that food. However, there are problems with the federal rule and with looser interpretations of certain sections of the rule. And some of those in particular have been getting a lot of media attention lately. It's one of the reasons really that the Regenerative Organic Certification Project that I get to launch is, was developed. And that is because the federal rules, is allow, they're allowing hydroponics. So they're allowing crops to be grown and sold as organic that do not come from the soil. And many, many people feel like organic farming should only be from crops that come from the soil. And um, we agree. And we don't think there is a place for hydroponics in the organic world because it doesn't help to really improve or build healthy soil. And that is really at the heart of the organic law. And it is certainly at the heart of our standard with the regenerative organic certification standard. I can elaborate on that in a minute, but I also want to add on that there was a lot of concern in this industry when the Trump when when Trump was elected, appointed Sonny Perdue as his Secretary of Agriculture, and the USDA kind of started taking some different direction in a lot of ways that are very concerning to those of us on this more ecological side of farming. And one was that they rolled back the animal welfare. Uh, provisions that were going that had been debated within the industry for many years to add these to strengthen the animal welfare provisions in the federal law. So the animal welfare provisions were rolled back. And so now there's no animal welfare clause in there. And so animals are living in conditions that are not acceptable for many, many of us and many organic consumers would not be happy to see kind of factory like setting that that a farm can raise animals in. So that, that was another big area of contention, and it's one that we also are, t- are attempting to address with our certification. Before I dwell too much on like these other issues around the federal law, I would just say that to give your, your listeners an introduction to what we're doing is um, this. I work as the executive director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, 
And I am the lucky, luckiest person who gets to oversee the launch of this new certification called Regenerative Organic Certified. And it is based on three pillars. We focus on the soil and land management practices. That's one, animal welfare. And then we're also bringing in a very critical and often overlooked component. And that is about those humans who are working on these farms and the, so the workers and the farmers and ensuring that they are getting their fair shake and a fair wage and being treated well. And um, it's a really, it's a huge endeavor. Uh, We've got some super leading pioneering brands and thinkers and and activists who are working uh, with us and on our board and as our founders. So um, they they certainly lead the way and kind of launching up this North Star that that and pointing me towards it and that's where we're headed. We're working on. Would you say that I guess part of um, the challenge is that previous certifications may have focused on very specific things. So there may have been certifications focused on animal welfare or things focused on fair trade, perhaps things focused on not having any agrochemicals or pesticides used in the process, and that may be organic. So there hasn't really been an integration of all of these components. And that is why this is such a high standard, but also one that's necessary if we want to holistically work on all of these issues together. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, You know, the consumers are overwhelmed. Uh, There's a multitude of choices out there and it's not always clear which seals are the most integrous, you know, like non-GMO project has been wildly successful. A lot of consumers think that means that it's organic but it really doesn't. And so like trying to get this one seal that will represent a compilation of all of the highest standard seals is what we're trying to do. You know, with the leaders who are backing us here, uh, I think that that's where we're going to get. And there's going to be a really clear identification of this rock logo. And um, perhaps you can put it up on your website for your for your listeners to see it. So they get get a sense of what it is. So they know what to look for in the future, but that that's what this rock standard is going to come to mean. It's really this all-encompassing certification and comes to represent all of these in one product. You know, the, the original idea was, you know, we're recognizing all these other certification out there and we have this equivalency for those. And so if a, and a grower has to be certified organic in order to be eligible for the rock certification. So that is our baseline. And I think it's a really strong and smart baseline to have. That's where we build. We also recognize the EU organic. From there, we build. And, and then we'll, if the operation has livestock, then, then we require um, another recognized certification. And, and then we basically will look at the gaps between what that certification requires and what the founders of the ROA want our certification to cover. So um, in you know some examples, we we go over and above what the current what the average certifier is requiring. Our certification scheme is requiring, and it's pretty challenging. But ba- we fortunately have these three tiers, so it so farmers can kind of move along the journey. But it's it's bronze, silver, and gold, and so the gold standard is really high level and um, high bar and very aspirational. And I think is going to be challenging for many producers to get to the gold. I expect to see a lot of a lot of our producers using the silver rock claim more than mm. anything. 
I would love to talk more about soil health because it's one element that I feel like many other labels have left out of the picture and is a key focus of yours for good reason. When we think about the farm ecosystem, maybe just by the nature of what we can see, people often think about the farm animals, the plants, and of course the farm workers as well. But what really supports that entire farm ecology in the first place is all of the microscopic life within the soil. So what do we need to know about our current concerns with soil health and what is the role of the soil microbial life? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been pretty deep in that lately. I'm uh, just so inspired by the work that's happening right now in soil. And I was so fortunate last week to be in Carthage, Tennessee at the Climate Underground a gathering at Al Gore's farm uh, called Caney Fork Farms. And they brought together this amazing cohort of soil scientists and folks working on this, um, solving these crises and uh, just really inspiring. And some, if I ever wanted to get all the soil scientists who are doing really cool work in soil in one room, like there they were. <laughs> so, I mean, we had David Montgomery and his wonderful partner, Anne, who wrote, um, they wrote The Hidden Half of Nature. And so it's definitely a book I would highly recommend. I think it's one of the questions you ask. And even though it's a little, it's, I don't know when it was published. It's a fantastic book to really understand what is going on down there in this living crust of the earth. And I love to talk about how we farm the living crust of the earth. The top six inches is where, you know, where the arable land is. And there is all this life there. And we have been just crushing it, crushing it through heavy tillage and compaction and blasting it with chemicals and killing all the very life form that we depend on to move the nutrients into the rhizosphere so that the plant roots can get to it and grow healthy food. And so it's just, it's kind of asinine, um, that, that approach, but there's so much learning happening right now about what we need to do to build healthy soil. And so a lot of it comes from this other folks who are working in the regenerative circles and they aren't necessarily ascribed into the organic, um, yeah, that, that it has to be done organically, but I think there's a huge recognition that chemical, like using chemicals is not the best path forward because it kills the microbial life in the soil. So, um, but the, the biggest thing they're doing, the, the most positive I'd say is um, like from Gabe Brown and the folks that kissed the ground is this regenerative practices where it's, you always have to leave the ground covered. You minimize tillage and you plant a diversity of crops and minimal disturbance to the soil. And all these things will help recover the health and the kind of teeming microbial masses that live beneath the soil. There's more life in one teaspoon of soil than humans on the planet, by far. And we're, and we're just discovering. We, we've identified only like 15 or 20% of those life forms. So the other 80, 85% we don't even know what they are. We don't know what function they play in that soil ecology. And we need time to do this research and we need to do it fast and learn about what's going on in the soil so that we can continue to advocate for policies that support building healthy soil. And this is happening a lot around the country, around the world. I'm no soil scientist. I qualify as a soil geek, but um, I think we cannot understand it well enough and figure out how to convey this to everybody so everybody knows that healthy food comes from healthy soil. And I would also just say like the, one of the founders of the ROA is the Rodeo Institute. And J.I. Rodeo coined that phrase many, many years ago. He was already onto this long ago and, um, you know, the, wrote famously on this black 
forward about healthy soil equals healthy plants equals healthy people. So it's this is all part of one big picture. And the sooner we start to understand that and help farmers get to a point where they're not using chemicals and heavy tillage practices, the better. And to put that into perspective, I believe the United Nations reported that based on how we're doing agriculture across the board right now, we have about 60 years of topsoil left. So our food system depends on having healthy soil. Absolutely. Yep. We, um, they're saying that there's the IPCC report that is really pretty frightening. Um, if you've, you've probably seen that and read that and, um, we actually just did a, we did a newsletter recently about that and there's, uh, with the link to that paper and yeah, it's, it's absolutely frightening when you consider that we've only got that many years left, but we also, you know, we've also got this issue with carbon <laughs> and, and, and so like, I think that we're going to have other issues before we run out of soil, but, um, you know, so unless we can start turning this ship around and, you know, Paul Hawken has done tremendous work and, and I understand he's working on another book right now, which I can't wait to see the first, you know, the drawdown talks about like really quantifying all the different methods that are out there to draw carbon down out of the atmosphere. And, you know, whether it's through reducing the kind of the fuels and emissions and renewables and electrification of vehicles or solar, all those things. But he, he notes that regenerative organic practices um, are 11th in like effectiveness. It's not that costly. This doesn't require a huge investment. What it does require is research and education. What we would get in return is is uh, the benefits are manyfold because, you know, what, what we see right now in farming communities is a lot of devastation and poverty. You know, the opioid epidemic is in the news a lot right now, and it, it hits these rural communities really hard. People, um, their farmers are committing suicide at rates never before seen. They are caught in this vicious treadmill and um, profit margins are just slim to none. And so as climate changes and they have to deal with all the vicissitudes of nature, like the flooding that happened last year. So they couldn't get in their fields to harvest, nor could they even get in their fields to plant. As we moved into the late spring of this year, much of the Midwest was still underwater. Infrastructure and bridges were collapsing. And this was all from these torrential rains and standing water. And um, farmers get hit the worst by these natural disasters, oftentimes in, in, in those rural communities. So finding solutions to that drawing down carbon and trying to reverse the effects of climate change. It's a huge goal for us. And I think um, very well recognized that regenerative farming can go a long ways in pulling carbon down into the soil. And it's one of the reasons all these soil scientists are um, you know, eagerly discussing these methods and how we measure the benefits, how we measure what's going on in the soil is also a huge topic right now in that community. Not always agreement on it, but recognizing that you know we have to like to to measure the carbon and show that that this carbon sequestration is actually happening we need this hard science science-based evidence to prove this out and to help inform land management decisions going forward and so there's a lot of different incredibly smart and capable folks on the path of that universities doing research um and and you know i think the tide is turning 
I'm coming to see more and more that a lot of times we may feel stuck with the status quo and the current system, in part because of the existing regulatory incentives that are favoring certain practices over the other. So what are some of the ways that our current government programs, farm bill or subsidies are hindering this transition towards regenerative agriculture? And what sorts of legislations or initiatives should we support to help incentivize a swifter revolution in this area? It's exactly the right question and probably where I would have gone next. So you are super (laughs) on top of it. Um, So the first thing, of course, is that, you know, we have this farm bill that subsidizes with taxpaying money, subsidizes these practices and rewards farmers for planting these crops that are doing all this damage. And so like looking, it's, it's a really policy wonky topic Not that fun to dive into, but really important that people understand what the federal crop insurance program is all about. There's some wonderful organizations doing work behind the scenes on this and identifying areas where we can affect some change in those policies that reward farmers for planting Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soy. Those get the highest crop insurance uh, um, guarantees for farmers. So, of course, they choose to plant those crops. And it's what they're growing in the regions where where they live because of the current infrastructure in those regions. For example, like there's these elevators and they are going to buy, they have to have an elevator nearby to ship, to sell their corn to or their soy. The problem with it, in my opinion, is that these growing these crops, number one, they were not, the farmers are being taught or being told that they need to do this to feed the world. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. They are not feeding the world with corn and soy. We're exporting, I've read estimates like 70 or 80% and of it either goes for biofuels or gets exported to other countries for livestock operations, like to China for conventional livestock as their middle class is growing and they have an increasing demand for, for meat. And then we use it for our feedlot beef here. So if we could make a switch and incentivize farmers to grow other crops to actually feed their communities, like that would be a tremendous change in how all the money from that farm bill gets distributed. And there's quite a lot, um, you know, in the billions of dollars. So that would be one change that could be made and that people really need to get a good understanding of. Another is like there, there's been a lot going on around soil health, as you just mentioned, and looking at the goals of healthy soil to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase soil carbon and support kind of those key soil health principles that I mentioned earlier. And there's a bunch of different initiatives and state laws happening that are actually doing this and rewarding farmers, helping do the research and development and helping with education. So California has a couple really good ones, the Healthy Soil Soils Program, Pennsylvania also just launched some great, uh, some really good bills around organic farming and soil. There's there's other states. There's, I think, 13 or 14 other states that are doing this. Maryland, Oklahoma, Utah, Washington State, Nebraska. So it's happening all over. And um, where we're state, states are beginning to recognize the need to do this. So as as all the results start to come in and we start to see these benefits, then we're going to be able to continue to spread the word and continue to affect change at a federal level. And so that's where we'll really get to pull on those levers, you know, and, and make some impact and make some changes. So 
I'm really encouraged by what's going on with that. I just hope it can go fast enough. That's the challenge, like federal policy and then market driven. Like those are the two levers I see. This is how we get to affect change. And consumers have a responsibility also. And, and not everybody really, not everybody has the time to think about where their food's coming from or the luxury or, and so you can't assume, you know, like a, a single working mom in an urban area in a food desert is really going to be able to get out to a place where she can buy healthy food and support this kind of farming economy that, that I envision for our future. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways we need to approach this and help get the uh, word out there and, and change policies to help, you know, maybe like through, here's a good example through the farm bill is the, uh, the food stamps program which of course is probably being rolled back now by Trump again, but there's, there are still, um, there's still some nuggets of really good programs in there. The women infant children program gives women vouchers. They can take to a farmer's market and buy food from a local farm. And it basically doubles their value, doubles their, their WIC money by using it in that way. There's other programs that uh, where doctors are prescribing prescriptions for people to get to eat local organic food. And so you know, if we look at that and we look at how much we spend on healthcare in this country, like uh, Zach Bush mentions this quite a lot when he speaks. I don't know if you've had him on your show or talked to with him at all, but he's doing a lot of really pivotal work here and um, in this sector. And yeah, he talks about like three over three trillion dollars is spent on diet related diseases, fighting diet related diseases in this country. So cancer and diet related diseases like obesity and diabetes, those are com obesity, diabetes like this is coming from processed food. That's what the corn is used for in this country is to make the additives and all the different things that go into the processed foods that we have people addicted to. So, so many layers to this. I know. Um, I feel like across a lot of different sectors and industries, part of the challenge is, of course, big money preventing the changes that we need to see at the federal level and also in, in the marketplace. So I'm assuming the answer is yes, but are there players in big agriculture currently benefiting from the current system that would see this regenerative movement as a threat and maybe lobbying or even funding political campaigns in efforts to stifle the changes that you're hoping to lead? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You get right to the point of things. Um, First of all, you know, there's the big three chemical companies. There's been a lot of discussion around this. I, I don't know if you know Robin O'Brien, but um, she's done a lot of work on this with um, her book, The Unhealthy Truth. You know, looking at Monsanto, DuPont, and, you know, some of the other big players in that ag chemical space. And they also are promoting regenerative farming or calling, I think they maybe they're changing it to climate smart farming, but it's something that um, the founders of the ROA were very concerned about and why there's been this urgency and heavy push to develop this standard and certification program really quickly. And that's because of this fear of greenwashing of the regenerative term. But we really wanted to get out ahead of that and define it. And so we, we define it by attaching it you know, it's intrinsically linked to organic and then bringing in all these other components that I mentioned earlier under our pillars, our three pillars. There's some very powerful interests here at stake, obviously. And um, I think their best interest is to keep farmers farming convinced that they're, they're using more modern technology and that these bigger, more expensive pieces of equipment instead of a $500,000 tractor, maybe a $7,000 tractor that has laser you know, that can do all this very precise 
applications of herbicides, which is great because it does minimize the use of herbicides. That's awesome. But hey, they're still using herbicides. They're still making them dependent on the system. And so we, we just really have to prove this out quickly and prove out the benefits of the regenerative organic practices and the ability to feed people through this because there's a lot of criticism that, oh yeah, but the yields are too low and you all can't feed the world. And it's it's really not true. I think that there's um, just recently PBS actually had an article that was, I'm not sure what um, what journalists they cited or just one, but they, um, they definitely uh, missed quite a few points with this article recently about how global farming or organic farming is contributing to global warming. Did, did you happen to see that article? I haven't, but that sounds off base. <laughs> yeah, totally. And um, yeah, it was interesting. I'm just like wanting to us to get out ahead of those kind of things, though, you know, and making sure that everybody in this sector is aware of the need to work together. You know, there was some just different movements going on. And for me, um, what's most important is that we all work together. We are in this country. There's a demand of about 5% for organic food. So about 4% of that is imported because we only have about 1% of our farmland here in the U.S. is farmed organically. So wow. 99% of our arable land is farmed in a non-organic way, in a conventional way. And so we have a long, long ways to go. And there is no time for kind of inner circle, circular firing squads or whatever you want to call it. Like it's time to link our arms up, move this together. And, you know, just recognize the urgency of it and the need to collaborate and work across across sectors and across perhaps beliefs, you know, so that's like, I think that's something that's just really important to emphasize. Like we, um, we all need to work together and there's a space for everybody here. We've all got a role um, to play in moving this and, um, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I was going to say, I really love that you guys collaborate with all of these other existing certifications and programs as well. And it's not a competition. It's a, you know, how do we work together to move the needle forward in a meaningful way? So I really love that. And we will definitely look to Regenerative Organic Alliance as the leader in this field of the regenerative field so it doesn't get greenwashed by other people doing questionable things. Um, and I mentioned in a previous interview with farm justice activist Rosalinda Guillen, but I think it's important to bring up here again, the proportion of our income that we spend on food today is almost half of what it was in 1960. So the average share per capita income spent on on food fell from 17.5% in 1960 to 9.6% in 2007. I think more recently it rose a little bit to 9.9%, but um, in general, I think most people see this as a good thing. But yeah. to me, what this means, and I'm sure there are a lot of complexities within it that I have to learn more myself, but what I see is that we had an overall rise in income. Many other things may have gone up along with that with inflation, but essentially we've cheapened nature, we've cheapened the production of food and the labor and the hard work that goes into stewarding the farmland responsibly. So with Regen Organic having such high standards for worker rights, animal welfare, and ecological stewardship, inevitably I would assume assume it's going to cost more. So how do we work with that public perception and assumption that food should be cheap and another layer of how low to mid income families may not even be able to afford organic as it is? Yeah, it's like um, you're reading my mind. So there it's something I bring up a lot is the cost of cheap food and this idea that we're entitled to this cheap food. And so it's it's definitely there's there we're a long way from kind of correcting 
course on that and and helping people see that they do need to pay for the true cost of food. And if if the consumers aren't paying it for it for it themselves, then we need to find policies that will support it and help that happen. Just like I, I spoke of earlier, the WIC through those WIC benefits or food stamps that would reward or allow people to, you know, support a local community supported agriculture in their community by way of a doctor's prescription that their insurance then reimburses them for. Um, and not to say that people can't afford it, but I do think that, um, you know, that our economy is not as good as people may think it is. And people aren't always living with like this, all this extra income to spend and suddenly justify a 20% margin on top of what they're spending on food. And so it's a really challenging area. I don't know the solution. If I did like this, we would have solved all this a long time ago. But, you know, I do think that the the millennials and Gen Z, they're coming into their own now and they're they're starting to work out there and get jobs where they actually understand a lot more of the complexity around food. And they have this kind of demand for authenticity and for full transparency. And they've got this ability with their smartphones. They grew up with smartphones in their hands. And so they can look things up and they've got a kind of a bullshit meter <laughs> for food and for false claims. And so I think they can really keep getting at it, getting at the real truth of where food comes from with their kind of more discriminating purchases and that purchasing power, but no idea how to answer for that. Like really, if people looked at the multiplier effect of using using your food dollars in your own community to support the farmers and places where people actually can farm. And, and here actually, here's a really good spot where um, hydroponics or vertical farming in urban areas are a wonderful thing that can really feed people in an urban area. You can't assume that everybody lives in a place like, well, I, I kind of live in paradise here in California. We I can grow kale pretty much year round, you know, and I, I can grow many things year round. But you can't say that for the folks up in Michigan. So it's not always possible to have a local food shed. shed. But I sure think we could do more to de develop that. Just begin to have your own milk shed, fiber shed, grain shed, meat. You know, I love the whole shed concept and going bioregional with our food and trying to find ways to incentivize and support that through federal, state and local county policies. Well, as we've discussed, organic is certainly a step in the right direction. And to build upon that right now is a really crucial moment where we have to uh, go regenerative. And that can simultaneously address so many crises that we're facing today, our public health, some of our public health issues, uh, farm worker justice and their health and safety, biodiversity loss, animal welfare, climate change, and etc. So in light of all this, with the work that you guys have been working on, where are we right now? And how far along this progression are we in guiding farms to make this transition? First up on the larger scale, as I as I said, like that we're only 1% of agriculture. And so, but you know, you've got the General Mills, this initiative, the Soil Carbon Initiative to go to convert 1 million acres um, by, um, I can't remember what year, maybe next year or three years or something, I've forgotten what their goal, their time frame is. But um, you know, making these big initiatives is is really important. And I believe that we can continue to build this momentum and go for some really big, just set out some huge goals. Like let's, why 1 million? Why not? Like there's 350 million acres of Midwestern row croppers that could really use some assistance in changing um, kind of their their whole farming community and what's what's happening in those regions. So like, let's think big and let's find ways to help move that 
move that needle. Or as we started to say, because I kept hearing move the needle so much uh, last year that I was like, oh my gosh, we got to like, let's, do, we got to flip the record. Like we got to, like, we got to change the whole tune. It's um, because everybody's trying to move the needle and we just like, we got to throw this out the window and, and go to another medium altogether. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that there, we need to have some really big far reaching goals and be bold about it and be, make it transformative and just keep reaching across industries so that we can work together and support one another. There's a lot of money, a lot of funding out there to support this good work. And so, um, you know, finding a way to drive um, money to fund research, innovation, and education. And, and really that is sorely needed. Um, and for us personally here with the, um, at The Rock, we're, we're right almost over halfway through with our pilots. We've done pilots in six different countries right now. And um, we are focusing in on our last few pilots in the next six weeks. And it's been incredible. So our pilot process has involved uh, 21 producers in nine countries. And some of those producers were really large grower groups of like 100 or 1,500 um, a thousand coconut or palm growers from Ghana to Sri Lanka. We've got cotton in India and rice. Um, we're working with lotus rice folks over there in different areas. Um, we've got mate coming out of Argentina and oats up in Canada, and then a multitude of crops, different commodity crops um, here in the U.S. Um, and then we've got some tropical fruits coming out of Nicaragua. So it's been really exciting. We've learned so much um, during the pilot process and learning where we need to possibly, you know, make some changes to the standard. We, we want it to be aspirational and far reaching as all hell, but we also need it to be attainable. OK, it's got to be you can't make something like so high that nobody can meet it. So, you know, there's certain areas of our standard that are going to need some a closer look. And my board is, you know, at the ready. The ROA board is full of really thoughtful leaders and they are there and um, we just met this week and everybody's on notice that the, the coming months are going to be really critical as we have a, have another stab at, at revising the standard or, or kind of taking in all this feedback from the pilots and, and then we're going to launch our open certification in the spring. Well, we thank you and all of your collaborators for your leadership in this area. And we're really looking forward to the certification being rolled out. So we will definitely keep our eyes peeled on that. And to close, how would you recommend that we as individuals support this regenerative revolution? You'll start to see our product on the shelves, hopefully this spring. I have so many different people, farmers reaching out to me all the time wanting to get certified. So I think once we open up the gates, it'll, you know, it's going to be going to be a mad rush as my prediction and we're going to have a lot of rock certified products in the coming in the coming year um the pcc markets um they're going to be helping us do a feature and educational kind of um, launch for us in the spring so if any of your listeners are up in the northwest region they probably know and love the the puget sound um, community markets up there or co-op and so you know, they're going to help us checking on our website, signing up for our newsletter. We'll be, um, we're just launching our social media actually this week. It's been a very soft launch and it, I've been slow to, to come to that just because it's so busy, so many things going on. And I know it's just going to open up 
you know, it's like Pandora's box. <laughs> so once you do that, then you need to have a dedicated staff person to really handle it. And, um, you know, we're trying to grow. I need organizational capacity. Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's has been incredible and they have really been the main ones funding this, but we're now building out an allies program where allies can help with the financial contribution to help us build capacity and build this movement. We're looking for developing a fund to offset the cost of certification for farmers or to offset the cost of the soil sampling, which is, you know, we require soil sampling every three years so that we can really quantify and track the changes over time. And that's no other program requires really that level of soil sampling. So, um, you know, that, that comes at a cost and farmers, we really don't want farmers to bear the cost. So yeah, we're looking for ways to help fund that, to fund the education and, and all the research. So yeah, as far as what consumers can do, gosh, ask for organic, ask for regenerative organic, stay abreast of these things, listen to your podcast, listen to Sourcing Matters podcast. Uh, There's a lot of great resources out there. The Farmer's Footprint, the folks that kiss the ground, they're all doing really good work and helping to educate people and spread the word on this. Paul Hawkins' new book will be coming out. And then also the um, David Montgomery and Anna Bilk, they have a new book coming out that is called What My Food Ate. It's the next step, I guess, from their hidden half of nature. And so I'm going to talk about the really exciting topic of what's going on inside our guts and how what we eat affects um, our health and minds. So, yeah, just keeping keep educating yourselves about this. That's um, that's what I would say at this point. You're listening to Green Dreamer. I'm your host, Kamea Shane, and we're now going into a mindful musical intermission before closing off with our final five. Don't wait any longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all have the power to What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Let's say pharmacology. It starts with an M. S. <laughs> pharmacology by Daphne Miller. Uh, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? We are making change and the world is ripe. Everybody's ready for this. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? <laughs> Gosh, there's so many things. Um, <laughs> I'd like to surf more often. I've been really busy this year. And it's kind of ironic that um, I come to work for this amazing leader, Yvonne Chenard, who wrote Let My People Go Surfing. Mm. And my time for surfing has been kind of dramatically. <laughs> He's <laughs> so, not letting you I go surfing. It. It's not his fault. It's because I'm so committed. I get up and jump to run to work. And I just like, I don't make the time for it. But yeah, surfing is just the biggest joy and the best, uh, I think the best return on my health, paddling out there in the water and catching some rides. So yeah. Other than revolutionizing agriculture, what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? 
I guess try and eat more, eat more of my food locally. I grow, I try to grow, I buy from, I actually, this year I knew I'd be so busy that I, I signed up for the Green Valley CSA, some of the most beautiful, wonderful farmers I've ever met. So, you know, keep eating locally, try not to buy things. I do have to travel by air a lot, trying to offset those, the carbon. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Everybody's listening. And maybe not everybody, but the people I'm talking to and people I'm around. <laughs> so it's trickling around. It's trickling around, up, down, all around. I think people really are getting it. The climate deniers are, are went back under their rocks. So I think they're going to stay under those rocks and the rest of us are going to bring the revolution. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Elizabeth's work at the Regenerative Organic Alliance, you can head to www.regenorganic.org. And you can also follow them on Instagram, which just got started recently. So definitely follow them. And also on Facebook at Regenerative Organic. All of this will be linked in our show notes that you can find at greendreamer.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, for your leadership, we're really excited about all, all of this regenerative work being done. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? First off, I just want to thank you. I think your shows are really wonderful and you clearly, you know, have a really good grasp of these these topics. And there's there's a lot, the whole lot to bring to bear. And, um, you know, I think you're just doing a really tremendous job with it. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you. And gosh, you know, I just say everybody, like, let's work together. We we need to help solve, not intensify problems. You know, it's not just enough to grow our food and fibers, chemical free. We want to grow topsoil. We want to draw down carbon and we want to regenerate this earth so that we have a healthy future for everybody. So thank you. Yeah, we are.